If you have your Bibles, open them up. We are ready for um, the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 20. We left off last week at uh, chapter 20 and verse 33. This is when my clock said 0000, so we stopped. Um, this part of 1 Samuel, and just to catch you up to speed, um, Saul was the first anointed king of Israel. And Saul was not recognized the first king of Israel. And actually, God says of the Bible, God says that David is the first king of Israel. And for you and I who know the history of the Bible, we think, well, that's a mistake because David was not the first king of Israel, that David was technically the second king of Israel, but Saul was never recognized in God's eyes as the king of Israel. And um, just like when Abraham took Isaac up onto the mountain, do you remember what God said to Abraham on the mountain? He said, take now your son, your only son, and sacrifice him here on a mountain where I will show you. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, Isaac had another son by the name of Ishmael, but Ishmael was the son of the flesh, and he wasn't recognized by God. So is it error when God said, take now your son, your only son? No, God only recognized one son. Same way with David and Saul. Saul is anointed king first. God rejects him. And David technically is the one that God chose. David is the one that God was going to eventually appoint as the first king of Israel. But Saul and the people had, well, it's not Saul at this point, but the people had sinned and demanded that, that, they, that God give them a king to rule over them because they were having a hard time trusting in the provision and the protection of God. And so God raises up Saul and Saul starts out very humble and very good and very Christ-like in his beginnings as the first king of Israel. And then as we've been seeing in the last month, the, the Saul is on this downward slide and Saul has become for us a type of what? A type of antichrist. Thank you, Tony. Saul has become a type of antichrist because he's somebody who looked like Jesus in the beginning, had all the characteristics, all the qualities. And then um, he dupes us and he tricks us. And biblically, Saul now for us is a type um, uh, of antichrist as he started well and he's going to finish very bad. We've been watching um, David kills Goliath in chapter 17. He begins to um, serve and live with 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 Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan and Saul last or Jonathan and David last week we saw their hearts were knit together and they became as the closest of friends through the rest of the story. And that's kind of where we let off last week. The um, where we did leave off was when um, do you remember? Um, Saul had had thrown three different times. He threw his spear at um, David, trying to kill David, and missed every time. And then what we the, the the last part of last Wednesday was was Saul throwing his spear this time not at David but at who? At his son Jonathan. And we ended remember talking about that if you're you're the type of person that throws spears at your enemy. Eventually, when your enemies are not around, you throw spears at your loved ones. And that's what Saul did. And Saul was just, he, it's, it's who he was inside, is he was a spear chucker. And you guys all laughed when I said spear chucker. I'm not going to go into that, but why you guys would laugh when I said spear chucker. But, um, but anyways, that's where we left off. So that brings us to chapter 20, verse 33. And it says, then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, which was Jonathan, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill Saul. So you think 
And then in verse 34, it says, So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and the little lad was with him. And then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And the lad ran, and he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Now, if you'll remember again last week, um, David was supposed to come to dinner with Saul. And David said to Jonathan, his son, Saul's son, I can't come to dinner. Your dad wants to kill me. And he said, okay, well, you, you leave and I'll go catch my dad's temperature. And if we find out that my dad's okay and it's safe for you to come back, then I'll, then I'll let you know. I'll give you a sign. He said, well, how are you going to let me know that your dad doesn't find out? And so they devised this little plan that Jonathan would go out to the, the, the archery range and David would hide behind a rock and Saul would, or Jonathan would shoot arrows and he would send a boy out to get the arrows. And if he told the boy, hey, the arrows are closer to me, come on back, then, then that's talking to David and David would know it's safe to come on back. He says, if the arrows are beyond you, then, then I'll yell at the lad, the arrows are beyond you, go your way. And so he's sending this secret signal to David here. He, sh- he sends the boy out. He purposely shoots the arrows over his head. And then he tells the lad, the arrows are beyond you, go your way. And in verse 37, it says, when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master, but the lad did not know anything until Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times and they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be with you and me between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed from Jonathan and went into the city. David is going to make good on this um, covenant that he makes with Jonathan here twice, once here and once already before, where David promises to show kindness to Jonathan and those of his descendants. And then after Jonathan and Saul die in battle here coming up in a couple chapters, Um, Later, as David becomes king, he remembers this vow and he asks, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that I might show kindness to? And it's a young man named Mephibosheth that David brings into his house and, and shows kindness to him. In chapter 21, again, now David is on the run. From Saul, Saul has has attempted to kill David many times unsuccessfully. And it says, um, now David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? And so David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or which I have commanded you and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. So um, so David now, he comes into the holy uh, place. Now, at this time, 
where is David? He, he's in this place where the Holy of Holies is, where the showbread and the, 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 the temple and the table was. But what was it actually that David was, was at here in this point in history? It's still the tent, right? It's still the same tent that, that Moses had erected in the wilderness. And it's not until later in Israel's history that um, Saul dies, David becomes king, David dies, and Saul's, or David's son Solomon builds the actual first um, temple of God that's not in the house. And so David is there. And, and um, I want you to notice, I guess, in, in verse number two, that David is lying, now, we, we've come to this topic a couple times and wanting to be careful that, you know, we're, we're not saying or, 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 or trying to justify lying. But what's interesting is that um, lots of times, actually, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, um, we, we have recorded these stories where um, people aren't just absolutely telling the truth. And, and it seems that God doesn't, you know, God's going to, Jesus is going to mention this. We're going to read it in a minute. Jesus is going to mention this story. And. He's not going to bring up the fact that David was not exactly truthful. As a matter of fact, remember last week when Samuel, God was speaking to Samuel and he told Samuel, he said, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse and anoint um, the next king of Israel. And Samuel said to the Lord, I can't go to the house of Jesse and anoint one of his son's kings. If Saul finds out, he'll kill me. And the Lord, the Lord said to Samuel, just tell him you're going there to make a sacrifice, which he was. He was going to make a sacrifice, but he wasn't, um, it was more to the story, you know, and that was God telling him how to handle that situation. And then, you know, remember Ruth? What did Ruth do when the spies came and, and the, the two Israelites were in her house? She lied and it saved their lives. And then when it's recorded for us in Hebrews, in the Faith Hall of Fame, Ruth's name is mentioned. Does God say about Ruth, that lying harlot? No, he says, by faith, Rahab, you know, and, and so, you know, and, and again, it's not something that I'm going to spend all night unpacking tonight, but, you know, I, I know, I know the idea, right? And, and one of the Ten Commandments is that I'll not lie and God doesn't allow lying. But, you know, the argument again is, and I, and I happen to be on the side that, you know, if, if you're in your house, and this is stupid, but it illustrates the truth. If you're in your house and, and a burglar or, you know, a boogeyman breaks in and you hide your children in, in, in the back bedroom somewhere and the boogeyman says, where's your children so I can kill them? Thou shalt never lie. They're in the back bedroom hiding under the bed. <laughs> you know, like, so, right, situationally. And again, I, I want to be very careful that I'm not I'm not saying that. You know, in life, there's there's lots of that. That's a very extreme case that there's not, you know, lots of of, of circumstantial things where, where God approves of us lying. But, you know, obviously you wouldn't tell the boogeyman where the kids are hiding. And Rahab didn't tell the, the murderers where the Jewish spies were. And um, and and here David. Is not telling the truth. And and God and when Jesus mentions this in the New Testament, Jesus is going to mention this story that we're reading right now. He 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 doesn't mention it. I'm not saying he condoned it. And unfortunately, in this particular case, this story that David tells, it's going to cost the lives of 85 people. And 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 there are repercussions for um, for our sins. And 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 in David's case, and th this one here is is different than Rahab and the boogeyman example. 
David here is is um, he, he's he's flirting more with just straight lying, like not something that that is protecting somebody's lives. David's just not telling the truth. Um, in verse two, it says again, I'll read it again. So David said to Amalek, the priest, the king has ordered me on some private business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. So, so David is on business for the king or not? No, he's running from the king. The king doesn't know what's going on. And Abimelech trusts David because David is a part of um, Saul's um, kingdom. He's married to his, his daughter. And David said in verse 3, Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand. There is only holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said, Truly women have been kept from us for at least three days. <laughs> like, we've been good, man. Those guys must have had it good in life, right? He thought three days was a long time. <laughs> All right, I'll be careful. Um, he's like, yeah, three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is an effort common even though it was consecrated in the vessel to this day. So um, as you guys know, if you've ever seen the model of the, the, the temple that Moses built, the temple that Solomon built, the temple that Israel is going to rebuild here very shortly, it has this table of showbread. And, and there was hot bread that was brought and presented on the table of showbread, which stayed there for a certain amount of time. And nobody was allowed to eat it except for the priest that was consecrated unto the Lord. And then um, it was part of the provision that God made for the temple workers and, and for the tribe of Levi and part of the way that God provided for um, those that, that didn't have regular jobs because they were um, doing the work of the ministry on a full-time basis. And so um, David says, give me this bread. And he says, well, I can't give it to you that it's, um, it's, it's holy unless, and they kind of come up with this little you know, scheme. There's this this saying in Israel that if you, you know, something is against the law of God, the law of Moses, and you can't figure it out, you just go ask the rabbi. Because the rabbi will tell you a way around it. He'll figure out some loophole or some way you can do what you want to do, still technically not be breaking the law, and then get what you want to get done. And, and that's kind of what, what, what's happening here. Um, look at Matthew chapter 12 really quickly. Jesus mentions this story, and it's it's kind of cool because, you know, again, Jesus doesn't mention the fact that David is not. Um... So we've, we've studied this recently. This is the story where the, um, the, 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 the disciples are traveling through a grain field and they pull the grain um, from the heads of the of the grain and they rub them in their hands and they're eating the wheat gum. And, and the, the Sadducees, Pharisees see this. Uh, I don't know what the Sadducees and Pharisees were doing out in the field following the disciples around, just constantly trying to find fault with them. And, and they're eating because they're hungry. And they say, your disciples are breaking the law because they're doing work and they're, they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And, and then they, uh, Jesus said in verse number, chapter 12 and verse number 3, are you there, Matthew? I want you to see this. Have you not read... Now, this is parenthetical here. Give me a second to take a little rabbit trail. One of the things that we've been studying as a church, um, it's just because where we are in the scriptures in Matthew, in chapter 16, do you remember that Jesus is talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and he says, you hypocrites, you can discern the weather 
but you can't discern the signs of the time. When you, when you see the sky is red at night, sailor's delight. When the sky is red in the morning, sailor's warning. And so he says, you, you know the, the signs of, of discerning the weather, but you've missed the signs of the times. And, and the, same, the same chastisement Jesus gave to his own disciples in another point along these same lines. And we've been making the point here in church on Sunday that there's, there's a certain um, responsibility that we have as Christ followers. There's a certain responsibility we have as Christians to know the things that, that God gave us. You know, like it, it's written for us in the Word of God. And, and ignorance is, is bliss, but it's really not an acceptable excuse when it comes to the things because what we see throughout the Scriptures over and over again is an expectation that, that the things that are written in the word of God, that we would understand them, that we would know them because we've read them. And so here he starts by telling these guys, have you not read? Like, don't you understand this concept? Like, had you read, simply read the Bible, you would understand this concept that I'm about to share with you. And so Jesus said, verse 3, Matthew, have you not read? That was the end of the parentheses. What David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that the, of the, on the Sabbath in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? That's a different issue in verse 5. Another thing where the priests are required to do, you know, work. You know, it's like people who say you have to observe the Sabbath. And you go to church on the Sabbath, well, they understand that the pastors and the, the people who are there in the church, they have to work in order to make that service happen on the Sabbath. And, um, you know, and so in essence, if, if that's the case, then we're breaking the Sabbath by working on that time. And Jesus said that that happens every, every Saturday, every Friday and Saturday in Israel, all throughout the nation. The priests are working on Sabbath and it's, it's okay. And, and have you not read? And the, then the first example is the one where we are right here in 1 Samuel. Is, is where David and his men and Jesus said, have you not read? And, and so why is, is it's against the law. It's against the law of Moses. And here is the author of the law. Here is the, 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 the creator and the finisher and the completer of the law, Jesus himself, who's telling these guys that what David did was not wrong. And it's confusing because the law of Moses says it's wrong. But but, the, but 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 if you know the heart of God and you know the heart of Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that human need supersedes the law. David and his men were hungry. Doesn't common sense say if there's bread right there? And your law and your religion and your restrictions say, oh no, it's, it's offensive to God if you eat the bread. And here God stands in Matthew 12 and says, I'm not offended. You're hungry, eat the bread. Amen, right? Like, you know, one of the one of the travesties really of religion and, and, and recently with some friends that, that I've spoke to about some changes going on around here is, you know, what breaks my heart is, is that what was said was that that Monday, if you, if you got Salt Lake Tribune, today's Wednesday, so what, maybe it wasn't this Monday, it was last Monday. So the, the cover this big on the front of the Salt Lake Tribune on Monday had the words that Jesus is offended. And I won't read the rest of the caption, but that, that's what it said. So-and-so says, Jesus is offended when? And my heart breaks because Jesus is not offended. And, and, and when, 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 when religion 
not just that one, but many all over. If, if it's if it's not relationship, if it's not, um, you know, the true heart of Jesus, where we serve the, the, the what Jesus's real heart of the matter is. Jesus is not offended with those petty things. Unfortunately, you know, what we do we make God so petty. And then we tell people that God is a is, is a tyrant in essence. And if you unpack these things, you, you you've created without even knowing it. A God who is petty, a God who is small, a God who's easily offended. And sure, God is a God who, who requires reverence and, and, and all of those things that we want to give him. But I'm telling you, he's not offended by those things. He's not offended easily. You, you have children, right? I can, re- I can remember, uh, we're all adults here, right? You know, there was this stupid YouTube video video going around, and there was this little saying, and, and my boys who were young, you know, at the time, eight, nine, maybe 10 years old, 11 years old, they said, they said, um, D's nuts. It was a stupid joke that was going around. And my boys said that. And I'm like, not liking it. Like, you don't need to be saying that. You heard that from the older kids or whatever, and going around it's a funny joke on youtube and 75 billion hits on this stupid youtube channel this youtube video and the boys saw it and they, they said it yeah i don't like it those are my children H- how long and how offended do i actually get you know like doesn't love supersede that hey you know cut that out don't say that don't repeat that it's not for you it's not for us that's about as far as it goes you know but if Again, so, so, so the point being of, of this whole story, of this whole example that Jesus gives us in Matthew, and it's so cool. I love when Jesus goes back to something that happens in the Old Testament, and he sheds a little bit of light on it. So now we can go back to Samuel, and again, we see this story, and, and Jesus' opinion of what happens here is that human need supersedes the law, and, and that, that God is, is not so easily offended. And again, you know, one of the things that, that, that I have to encourage people with all the time, because we, we do, and, and, and you and I included, we get the idea that God is mad at us. Didn't you ever feel that way? You feel like God's mad at you? You feel like maybe God's not listening, or that, that God's just done, or God's frustrated with you? You know, like, God, God is, um, he's not mad at you. It's It's freeing. It's, it's, it's the truth. Do you remember Moses in the, um, in the rock? Great story. You know, one, one of the worst mistakes Moses ever made in his life, and he paid dearly for it. But it's symbolism. And, and you don't mess with the symbolism. God created for us in the Old Testament symbols and pictures. And he doesn't want us messing with them. Why we know in every symbol and every picture that has to do with the rapture in the Old Testament, every one of them point to a pre-tribulation rapture. And you don't mess with the symbols. But in Moses' case, the symbol was, was Jesus. And the children of Israel were thirsty and they hadn't had any water and they were complaining and murmuring. And, 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 and they, they came to Moses and Moses came to God and he said, the people are thirsty. And God said, Moses, take your staff and strike the rock and water will come forth. 
And so Moses takes his staff there in Exodus and he goes to the rock and he hits the rock and water comes forth. Now, now the frustrating part for Moses and for God was that God had been working very hard in overtime with the with the people, the slaves who left Egypt to prove one thing to them. That he can be trusted, that he's a God of miracles, that he's a God of provision and over and over again, not not any other people in all of human history before or after personally witnessed as many miracles and, and, and the first hand movement of God than the children of Israel. Maybe those that, that, that go through part of the tribulation will rival that. But, but before that, after that, nobody's seen more miracles of God saying to his people. They, I mean, they've seen the ten plagues in Egypt. That doesn't, that doesn't, that's just the tip of the iceberg to what was about to happen when Moses, when they walked through the, the Red Sea on dry land and then the sea closed and he drowned the Egyptian army and God led them by a cloud of, a cloud during the day and a, and a pillar of fire at night and on and on and on, the manna and the provisions and on and on and on. And, and God was, was teaching his people they could trust him. So Moses strikes the rock and water comes out. Everything's great. Jesus is the rock. Symbolically, Jesus is the rock. Well, later, a little bit later, the people come to Moses with the same complaint, and there's no water. And Moses goes to the Lord, and and he prays, and God says, Moses, I want you to go to the rock and do what to the rock? Speak to the rock. Because why? The rock is Jesus, and the symbolism that God was creating through the word was that Jesus would be smitten the first time, would be struck, would die on a cross, And then after that, Jesus would not have to be smitten anymore. For your sins and my sins to be forgiven on this side of the cross, Jesus doesn't have to go back to the cross to die again, right? Now, if you want to have your sins forgiven this side of the cross, what do you do? You ask for forgiveness. You speak. You talk. And God was creating that symbolism in the Old Testament with Jesus being the rock. And then you remember the story, right? Moses comes comes out from speaking with God. And he goes to the people, and rightfully so, Moses is frustrated. Now, Moses is an interesting guy because Moses had anger issues. He really did. And on the same token, how do you have anger issues? And then on the, same, on the other hand, Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. Talk about a humble beast. And then he was. I mean, he, he's the one that told us, but apart from that, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like, how do you know Moses was the most humble person in the, in, the, in, the, in the planet? Well, because he told us. Kind of ironic. But it's in the Word of God recorded twice. Moses was the most humble man. So the most humble man that ever served God had anger issues. And he comes back to the people. And remember what he says to them? He said, must I smite this rock a second time? And he walks over to the rock and he takes his staff and he hits the staff, which he wasn't supposed to do. And by the grace of God, water came out and the people were provided for. There was only one problem. Moses broke the symbolism and was in big trouble. And so God pulls Moses aside. And listen, this is all that to say this. God said to Moses, Moses, I'm not mad at the people. You're like, Moses is like, well, I am. <laughs> Right. But no, he he wasn't mad at the people. And and Moses was angry. 
And if, and if anybody had right to be mad at the people, guess who it was? It was, it was God. God had, had right to be mad at the people. Like they, Moses was, you know, almost, you know, on the right path. And God could have, should have, you would think. And God said to Moses, Moses, I wasn't mad at the people. And you misrepresented me. You, you, you told the people by your actions that I'm mad at them. And listen, for you and me, listen, important. For you and me, as, as ambassadors of Christ, if your actions, if your words communicate to people that God is offended at them, that God is mad at them, falsely, God can be offended and God can be angry. The Bible says that. But, but if we're communicating a God who's angry all the time and offended all the time, we, we might fall into the same category that, that Moses fell into when God reprimanded him and said, hey, Moses, I'm not mad at the people. You misrepresented me. And as a result, Moses didn't get into the promised land. 120 years old, and the dude served God faithfully. And he didn't, except for that, that, that little, thing, little thing, like all the things that God forgave everybody else of, give Moses a break. But Moses didn't get a break. He broke the symbolism. Now he got a second chance right after he died. And what's interesting is the Bible says that, that, angel and, or that, that, that Gabriel and Satan had a, had a fight over the body of Moses, the Bible records. Kind of an interesting little tidbit that the Bible gives us. I believe personally... The reason why Satan was interested in the body of Moses for several reasons, but um, one of them being that, which God could resurrect it and do miracles anyways, and I'm sure that do it, but Moses will come back. He'll be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. And, um, you know, and, and the other thing is that, 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 Mo, that God, Satan could have used the body of Moses, you know, as a distractant to the people and the people would have worshiped it and the people would have idolized it and it would have created some problems, some idol problems in there. And so they um, they disputed over the body of Moses. But Moses twice, we see him um, on the Mount of Figure, uh, Transfiguration. We're going to study that this Sunday on uh, in Matthew 17. Moses is there at the Mount of Transfiguration in the Promised Land. So he got to go then. And he gets to go um, in the book of Revelation as one of the two witnesses. And then he gets to spend all of the millennium there with you and I. And it says um, in verse 6, So the priest gave him holy bread for there was no bread there but the show bread which has been taken from before the lord in order to put the bread in its place on the day in which it was taken so um whenever you see the term holy bread does it remind you of anything as we talk about symbolism as we we're constantly trying to find one thing as we study the old testament what are we always looking for when we study the old testament jesus Jesus. that's right we're looking for jesus we're looking for types for, for, for types of Jesus, for, for symbols, for um, pictures, because the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. Samuel, who wrote First and Second Samuel, if he was standing in this room today, you know what he would tell you about his writings? They're about Jesus. They're about Jesus. They're about Jesus. And so Jesus, tell, and Jesus tells us very plainly, right, in the New Testament, that he is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. One of the great seven I am statements of Jesus is that he's the bread of life. And so we have here, you know, in the Old Testament, this showbread that, that is no longer, you know, until the time of Jesus. Because when Jesus died on the cross and the temple of the veil was rent from top to bottom and shortly thereafter, the temple was, was, was destroyed by the 
a will and allowment of God, then no longer do we have the need for that showbread because Jesus becomes the bread of life and Jesus is the bread of life. And again, that was a symbol. That was a sign that pointed to the bread of life. In verse 7 it says, And now a certain man on the servants of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was, somebody say, when I say his name, you say, boo, Doeg, boo, you guys can do better. And his name was Doeg, this guy, he turns out to be a bad, bad guy, and he's there when this is all happening. So he's not quite, you know, paying attention. He says he's detained by the Lord. He's there. He's observing what's happening, and it's going to bite David. And David is going to say later, I knew when that Doeg guy was there, and he heard our conversations, and he saw what happened, that this wasn't going to go well, and he was going to betray me. And you're the bad guy in the story. I guess the name Doeg fits, right? Like, it's just short of dog. We might as well just call him dog, doggy. Doeg. We'll just put the E on the end. Dog. Doggy. Doggy. An Edomite, the chief of herdsmen who belonged to Saul. So the Edomites come from Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Esau were the Edomites. And so, and David said to Ahimelech, is there here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, you remember that? Whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except the one here. And David said, there is none like it. I love these next three words. David was probably super excited. He said, give it to me. Let me have it. But you know what was cool was how did the sword of Goliath get to that place where David's going to find it today? How did, how did it get to the house of God? David gave it to the house of God. That was David's sword. David, the Bible says, he killed Goliath with a stone, and then he took Goliath's sword and used it to chop his head off and carried the sword and the head of Goliath around. And David gets back, and he settles in. And again, we're talking about the temporary tabernacle that's literally in a cloth tent. But David takes the sword of, of Goliath as a prize and, and something that's very valuable to him. And what does he do with it? He brings it and presents it to God in the house of the Lord. And again, you know, there's lots of ways that we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, as, as we've been talking about as a concept on Sunday and, and, you know, in rewards that we unpack this week. But one of the avenues that God's given us to present gifts to him to store up treasures is through the local church. And so David in his local church, so to speak, in the, in the temple there, he brings this valuable item and he gives it, presents it to God and leaves it in the temple. And then later in his time of need, he comes back. You know, you notice David didn't say, hey, you remember that sword of Goliath that I brought to you? Where's it at? I want it. He, he, he doesn't mention it, whether he doesn't, maybe he's expecting it, maybe he's not, maybe he's really literally seeing if there's something else, a spear or a sword that he can use. And he says, is there any weapons here? Is there a spear or a sword here? And the guy says, just, just the sword of Goliath that you brought. And, and the same provision that David brought and gave to the Lord, God used to give back to him. And I, and I, really, I really don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that, that there is a lesson in that. There's, there's a little bit of a, a biblical pr principle. And why would I say it's not a stretch to say that? Because that truth is supported many other times in the scriptures. 
And again, we don't make things out of, you know, we don't pull truths out of these little things that, that don't apply. The way we're able to pull these truths out is because we find it mentioned and taught six, seven, five other places in the Bible. And the concept, Jesus himself said that if you give, it will be given back to you, pressed down, measured out, overflowing into your bosom. And so David here brings this thing to the house of God. And this is the very same thing that God uses to provide for David in his time of need. As I read through this today, you know, one of the things that I've been praying for us as a church is that we would see some some blessings and financial blessings for for those who made sacrifices to be a part of of this building project that's going on. And, you know, I, I wear it as as a as a as a responsibility that I, I don't need to wear. I know, but I can't help it. You know, I, I feel personally responsible and 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 want to see people that made sacrifices and believe that. You know, not that we gave to get back necessarily. We gave because we we wanted to, because we felt like God was calling us to. And but I, you know, but I, I believe the principle is true. I believe it's biblical. And and been praying that you know God would that people would would see the fruit and people would see and believe and know because God's going to give back or there's going to be some blessings that are going to return to um, each of you and to us as a church for those sacrifices. And but this one seemed to be um, delayed. This one seemed to be um, not right away, but at a time when David had real need, then that's the point where God provided his need. Now, David was two things. He was hungry and he was without weapons. And what did God provide? Food and weapons. So God always provides what we need. Um, and then in verse 10, it says, so David arose and fled that day from before Saul and he went to Achish, this, the king of Gath. Now, real quick, Achish. Um, the king of Gath, that's um, one of the five Philippine, uh, Philippine, Philippian, not Philippians, not Philippines, not Philippians, Philistine, Philistine, one of the five Philistine cities. Goliath was a Philistine. He wasn't a Palestinian or Philippian or a Filipino. He was a Philistine. So Gath, the five, five major uh, Philippines. Philistine cities, Gath being one of them. Achish is not a name, it's a title. So Achish means king, it means, so, you know, Herod. Herod is not the name of an individual. Herod is a title, and many people wore that title and that name. So when you see Achish, it's not always talking about the same guy. And the reason why I point that out is because we'll run into it again here in a minute. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king, the king of the land, did they not sing to him, to one another, the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? Meaning, you know, is this not David who's killed Goliath and tens of thousands of Philistines? This guy is a man of war. He's an enemy to us. And again, parenthetically here, this, this is where Saul and David's relationship went south. Saul and David were doing fine and Saul liked David and he killed the giant and he played music for him and he married his daughter and he stayed in his house until the day they came back from war and the women began to sing and only attributing to Saul thousands and to David ten thousands. And from that point, the arrogance and the pride of Saul's heart turned against David because he realized that people liked David more. And it was that song that kind of marks the beginning of the turn of Saul against David. Turn with me, if you will, really quickly to Psalm 34. Um, so one of the things um, that, that we'll try to do a little bit is um, David wrote a majority of the Psalms. 
So I'm not exactly sure how many psalms are attributed to David, but um, as we know, King David, who we're studying, was um, a, a poet. He was a he was a musician. He was a warrior. He was a lover. He was a fighter. He was smart. He was talented. He was well-rounded in so many areas. He was a songwriter. He could sing. He could play instruments. And what we're about to see in a minute is to add to his resume is he was an amazing actor. And so David was just that guy who had all these talents. But one of the things that's cool, as you read through um, First and Second Samuel, there's places in David's life where he was when he wrote that particular psalm. So when you, when you see there a psalm of David, then you tie that psalm back to a certain chapter. So here in this place where we are in First uh, Samuel 21 is where we come to Psalm 34 and we get um, some of the things of Psalm 34. I don't have a scripture. I just have Psalm 34 written down. So let me see if we can find some of it. The happiness of those who trust in God, a Psalm of David. When he presented madness, when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away. So there we get Achish's name. Achish's name was actually Abimelech, and Achish was the title. In verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make, make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O mighty, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him who were radiant and their faces were not not ashamed. So again, I'm not going to read the whole the whole psalm, but I wanted to, to make that connection for you. And it says there in the highlight that Psalm 34 um, was recorded at this time that we're about to read. Now, this was not exactly David's best day. Let's look what happened. Um, in verse number 13, it says, So he changed his behavior before them. We're back in First uh, Samuel. You guys with me? 21.13. He changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall from his beard. And then Achish, who we learned his name in Psalm 34, said to his servants, look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I, have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So a um, couple things here. Um, David feigns madness. He's in Philistine city. Now, as, as we often ask ourselves, did David belong in Philistine city? Probably not, right? It's not the house of God. It's not the people of God. You know, we, we've, we've seen this through Genesis many times. Lot ends up in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as a result, his wife is turned to a pillar of salt and his life changes. And when, when Lot first set, set up in Sodom and Gomorrah, he was on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he was, his tents were facing Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he was in the city gate of Sodom and Gomorrah as a leader. And then his family was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he called Lot out. But the hearts of his family had, had, been, had, had been changed. And his wife's heart was lost. 
And the reality was he had no business there. You know, Jacob at different times had no business doing and, and heading to the, the places of, of, of the Gentiles. We saw in Ruth, right? Remember in the story of Ruth, Ruth and her husband, um, they, they left the land of Israel and they went, they left the house of bread and they went to a, a, a Gentile Canaanite city and remained there. And that's where um, Naomi's um, husband and two kids died. And then, and then she comes back with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, from, from the, the land of, of, of the Canaanites. But she had no, no business in the beginning going there. And, and so David really, I mean, on one sense you could say, oh, well, David was brilliant because Saul is trying to kill him. And I guarantee you the last place on the planet Saul would ever expect to find David is in the home city of Goliath, the Philistines. Like the last place is he just killed their giant. He's not stupid enough to go there. We don't have to look there for him. And that's exactly where he goes. Think, oh, that's brilliant. They never find him. The, the other thing that's very, 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 very biblical. Listen. It's a lesson in life. Simply praying and asking God for direction before we make decisions. You, you know what the whole book of, of uh, um, Joshua is about? The whole story. It's underlined through the whole story. And Joshua sought the Lord. And should we go up? 42 battles. 41 victories. 41 prayers recorded. Of simply asking God, should we go up and and fight this battle? And God says, go up, go up, don't go up. Go up, go up, don't go up. Go up, but go up this certain way. And and just that little lesson of, of that pause in our lives before we make decisions. Uh, Ovi, who who runs Service Master, was praying this week about or was trying to decide this week if he should go to Florida and and help with the floods after the hurricane this week with his business. Because what happens is Service Master Corporate National, they they get a hold of the different Service Master people in the nation and they ask the company, will you send a team to Florida? Last month he was in South Carolina and it, and it didn't go so well in South Carolina. It was, it was just a bad deal. The jobs didn't pan out the way they were supposed to. It's a lot of money to travel there and pay your guys for the time. And it was a big struggle. And then he got a call to go to Florida. And he came and he said, he said, I just want to ask God, should I go or should I not go? Because I don't know. And it's just that simple. It's just a simple thing. You know, we prayed. And actually, Pastor Gerald was here last week. And, and we prayed for him. And we just prayed a simple prayer. Lord, bless him. Speak to him if he should go or not. And after it's over, you know, it's like, I know how we all are as human nature. You know, he's like, that was too simple. You know, like, that's it. Like, shouldn't we like dance and like do something like hear clouds in the sky and own voice of God and beat on a drum or something? No, <laughs> just simply pray. Most of the most powerful, earth moving, life changing prayers in the Bible were just very simple prayers. Just simply talking to God, acknowledging him, doing what it says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he shall direct your paths. But here we don't have any mention of David praying before he goes down to, to Gath. And he gets there. He's scared. He's afraid because the king is there. One of the guys says, hey, king, this is David who, who who's, they sing kills 10,000. And David's seeing what's going on. He's seeing the writing on the wall, and he's not, you know, he's not comfortable and happy. And so he, he, he really, out of fear, starts acting like a crazy man. But he's a good actor because the king bought it. He really did. Like, you'd think, like, this would have backfired in his face, right? Like, the king would have been like, 
Well, you're pretending. You're acting. We know who you are. You're a warrior. You killed all my men. You killed Goliath. But instead, the guy's like, hey, he really is crazy. And I don't I don't want this fellow to come in my house. Verse 15, need of a madman that the madman should be in my presence. So um, that's it for tonight, y'all. I was hoping to get at least through 22 tonight, but I guess we're going to be back here next Wednesday night. 22. So read ahead, if you would. It's always better when you read ahead and kind of know what's coming, but we can stand. We will actually try to jam for a little bit. We got um, a couple of kind of chapters of David running from Saul that we can get through a little quicker than we did tonight. Um, so we'll try to take at least three chapters next week and uh, try to speed up a little bit as we get into um, Second Samuel. Gets really, really good as we 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 get rid of the Saul chasing David part of the story. David's twenty years old at this point in his life. You think you know we're reading about David and um, that he's you know, but really to keep it in perspective, David is still a very young man. He killed Goliath as a teenager. He served under Saul. The Bible says he behaved himself very wisely and was being promoted and used until Saul just went wacko and tried to kill him a bunch of times. But now he's he's 20 years old and we're, he's going to go through 10 years of running from Saul. And, and we'll see these stories of, of David basically fleeing from Saul. And then Saul is going to end up in a battle when David's 30 years old and Saul dies in that battle. And at that point, David stops running from Saul and shortly after becomes the recognized true king of Israel. And then as we get into Second Samuel, we study the, the amazing life of King David as the king of Israel. Amen? Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. And Jesus, we thank you for each person that's in here, God. And we thank you for, um, Lord, your love and your blessing. We thank you for what's true in the word of God. And Jesus, we thank you that you were not offended by David and his men eating the showbread, even though it was unlawful. Because they were hungry and because you love people more than you love the rules. And God, we thank you that um, you're, not, you're, not, you're not that God. You're a God of compassion, a God of love. We thank you for the life of David. And we thank you for the, the integrity and the example of, that, that David said, set. And even when David has moments of, of fear and moments where he, he forgets to, to pause and, and seek you for direction in his life, that Lord, we learn from these things. And Lord, may it be a lesson for us that we can trust you and that before we make decisions and before we, we end up in, in pagan and Canaanite lands, Lord, so to speak, that God, we pause and we pray and we just ask for your direction. I thank you, Lord, that in our businesses and our families and our lives that you'll guide and you'll lead us. And God, we thank you tonight, especially um, for your favorite team, the Dodgers, and their win tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.